This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. As artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI safety security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI safety security. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So I am excited for today's episode because we're going to dive into the history of Silicon Valley. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the history of venture capital before 1972 because, well, I'll let Steve Blank tell you. Venture capital pre-1972 was infinitesimal in Silicon Valley. Funding for companies was military finance. So we wanted to answer the question, why aren't we all working for the government today. Well, that's what we're about to get into. Welcome to Rocketship.fm, the podcast where we explore startups from funding to growth, from culture to sales and everything in between. I'm Michael Saka. And I'm Joelle Goldman. 
So if we go back to the 1950s, uh, it's the start of the Cold War, and the U.S. and, and Russia are now at war, and our defense spending is booming, and it, it drives a lot of not only the innovation, but a lot of the economy. And so uh, out in California at Stanford, they had just brought in uh, a new dean of engineering, Frederick Terman. What he did was he had the vision to encourage and allow his students and graduates uh, and also his faculty to be entrepreneurs and start their own companies and use campus facilities and things around the campus to really foster this entrepreneurial community. There really was no venture capital scene here, so the money was coming from somewhere. Yeah, at this point, it was really government funding. Um, the idea of private venture capital wasn't really around or accepted in the way that we know it now. And so, like most things, it, it started as government money going into these innovations. So it's 1953, and the Nobel Prize-winning physicist William Shockley was growing tired of his work at Bell Labs. There was bureaucracy, and it was a very East Coast, hierarchical company, and he really wanted to venture out on his own. So he quit and moved from the East Coast, where the majority of these engineering companies really were headquartered, and moved out to Palo Alto just south of San Francisco. And his goal was to continue the work he was doing at Bell Labs, but with his own vision. Yeah, what he did was he set out to replace germanium, which was the main material used in transistors. And he wanted to go with silicon, which he thought was going to be a better material to build out these transistors in the future. And there's a few reasons why. Now, his goal was to take this mainstream, so he wanted something that was cheap and easy to manufacture. Silicon was more conductive than germanium and is relatively simple and cheap to manufacture as it's literally made from sand and could be done in a garage. So he founded Shockley Semiconductor Laboratory, uh, which was funded in part by Beckman Instruments. And so he became a subsidiary of Beckman Instruments and was able to start hiring um, some of the brightest physicists to continue his work. Yes. Yeah, so like a lot of brilliant people, he wasn't necessarily the best manager. And he had kind of an abusive management style, which led to a lot of conflict with his employees. And that ultimately led to some of the best and brightest leaving, which had some interesting impacts. To give you kind of a, an idea of what was happening behind the scenes at, at Shockley Labs, we found this story where his secretary had gotten a cut on her finger. And this led him to believe that his team was spying on him and he had everyone in the company take a lie detector test. So in 1957, seven of his brightest engineers banded together to continue the work that they were doing at Shockley Labs, but they didn't want to do it under Shockley. They were looking for their next opportunity, but they needed financing. Instead of turning to the government, they looked to Wall Street. So Eugene Kleiner's wife, uh, Eugene Kleiner was one of the seven top scientists were looking to leave. She wrote Arthur Rock, who was working on Wall Street, asking him, can you find a company that will take these seven engineers? At this point, Arthur Rock was working as an analyst at Hayden Stone and Company. And when he received this letter, he, he grabbed one of his managing partners and they came out to California um, to see if they could find 
a company that was willing to invest in this and, and kind of form a subsidiary with these seven engineers. Now, they would become known as the Traitorous Eight, and that's because they finally convinced Robert Noyce to come along. And Noyce is the central figure in this story as he really pioneers the technology behind silicon. He's also extremely charismatic and a huge risk taker. There's a story of him coming out to California to get the job at Shockley, moving his wife and two kids and buying a house before even going to the interview because he was so sure that he, that this position was his. So now Arthur Rock is on his way out to California. And this is where the story gets so good. But just a second, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. <coughs> Cold and cough season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. <laughs> So now Arthur Rock is on his way out to California. And when he gets out to California, he meets with 35 companies, all of whom said no to funding this new venture. And he's just about to board a plane to go back to New York, call the whole thing off, and he meets with the 36th company. So he met with Sherman Fairchild, and it was actually Robert Noyce who pitched Fairchild and convinced him that Silicon was the future, that this was it. So Fairchild ended up investing $1.5 in what would eventually become Fairchild Semiconductors. And this itself is a pivotal moment in Silicon Valley's history. Here's Arthur Rock. And if they had left with without forming uh, Fairchild Semiconductor, I don't think Silicon Valley would have been what it is because... The only place that they really could have gone was uh, either to Texas Instruments or to Philco um, or companies not located here. So this was the first big Silicon Valley deal. And what happened was... We divided up the company. Um, they each got 10%, which, which amounted to 80%, and Hayden Stone got 20 And that's where the famous 80-20 began with. And what that did, without them really realizing it at the time, was kind of set the formula for how equity would be divided up in the future. 
and a lot of people still follow this format today, even though it was kind of just arbitrary at the time. Yeah, even David McClure wrote on Quora, there is no good logic behind VCs taking 20% of an individual company in order to generate returns. Because of this first deal, it kind of set the the standard for what people followed um, as a general rule of law, being 80-20. So in retrospect, it seems like Arthur Rock is this huge visionary who knew exactly what he was doing, what the computing industry would become. But in reality, here's what he had to say about his vision. And, uh, you know, I had no idea, of course, that computers would become as widely used as they are today and for such scientific purposes. But it was obvious that there was a future there. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Now, this Traitorous Eight, they really were pioneers of the Silicon Valley we know today. Uh, They operated like a startup. They started in a scrappy studio um, in a garage. Though they were managed by a team in Syosset, it was odd for them when their CEO came out and and had a driver and he showed up in a limo and his driver sat there for eight hours as the story goes and they were just fascinated by this concept that someone would sit and do nothing other than wait so noise who had become kind of the the head of um fairchild semiconductor he believed in a very flat organization where everyone had input and everyone could bring ideas to the table but this style also clashed with their parent company and they wanted to do innovative things like have options for their employees because they knew that they needed to become more competitive in the space. And these types of, of I guess, Silicon Valley ideas really weren't received well on the East Coast where their parent company was headquartered. And these clashes eventually led to all eight of them leaving. Yeah, and it's a good thing that they did because Gordon Moore and Robert Noyce went on to found Intel, which has changed everything that we know about computers. And I think I can safely say allows us all to do what we're doing today. Uh, And Eugene Kleiner went on to found Kleiner Perkins, which is a venture capital firm that is still around today. And you've probably heard of Gordon Moore from Moore's Law, where in 1965, he extrapolated that computing power would continue to double for the foreseeable future. And looking back, that law has largely been used for the last 40 years to predict marketing and engineering targets. And so Shockley's attempt to commercialize uh, this new transistor starting in the 1950s Um, led to California's Silicon Valley becoming a hotbed of electronic innovation, which was before this happening largely on the East Coast. So coupled with the emergence of these other companies, Intel, HP went public, people started to really pay attention to what was happening out here in California. And so Rock himself went on to start one of the first West Coast venture capital firms, Davis and Rock. And they started this with just $5 million, which is basically, you know, the investment in one company today. Um, But he started with a pool of 15 to 20 
private investors that he knew from Wall Street. This was before institutional money was allowed to be invested in venture capital firms. This was really the only way to grow a venture capital uh, company was by using your own and private money. Here's Arthur Rock again. Institutions could not invest in venture capital firms in those days. It wasn't until the ERISA laws were changed in 1972. The government passed ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. And so what this did was basically um, set up guidelines for how private equity fund managers could invest their money. And inside of, of this act, it allowed them some provisions to invest up to 25% of their capital in more risky ventures like venture capital. And this is the first time that these that we see you know private equity money being invested in VCs, which is largely how the venture capital community is funded today. Right. And the other big thing that happened in the 70s is that the government slashed capital gains taxes, which is a tax on the profit you cash out of an investment. And they slashed this from over 50% down to 28%, almost in half. And this really changed the game in terms of how people looked at investing their money. It's incredible to realize that the venture capital in Silicon Valley superseded the government regulation by nearly a decade. And because of these pioneers like Arthur Rock, William Shockley, Robert Noyce, they really are the reason why we have this booming community and economy today. So, Joel, what do we have coming up in the next episode? So we've talked a lot about bringing this money together and the goals of you know, entrepreneurship for profit. Obviously, that's not a new concept for us. But what we're going to dive into next is liquidity events and all the ways that this theoretical money can get turned into cold, hard cash and um, pay out founders and investors alike. Big thanks to the Computer History Museum who let us use their clips from their Arthur Rock interview and their Steve Blank interviews. When you get a chance, visit our website, rocketship.fm, subscribe to our newsletter, and subscribe on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any more of this funding series and future series that we have in store for you. And if you haven't yet, follow us on Twitter at rocketshipfm. You could follow me at Michael Saka and Joel at Joel Goldman. <laughs>